Open, outspoken, it's ophthalmology off the grid, an honest look at controversial topics in the field. I'm Gary Woods. This past summer, U.S. surgeons gained access to a technology many had long coveted from abroad. The Technus Symphony IOL from Abbott Medical Optics adds a new device to the cataract surgeon's armamentarium and represents a promising solution for patients seeking a high degree of spectacle independence without compromising their near vision. Today, we'll hear from Dr. Kevin Waltz on his journey with the Symphony IOL, which began with the first clinical trial in Honduras in 2012. Kevin shares with us how that experience paved the way for the technology's warm welcome into clinical practice back home. And AMO will tell you that that process shaved between 18 and 20 months off worldwide delivery of the symphony from AMO. So had we not done that, if they'd followed the original plan in Germany, nobody in the world at the moment would have symphony. In addition, we'll hear from Dr. Jason Jones on his experience with the symphony, including pearls for the use of this lens and real world perspectives on where it will fit in going forward. So I really kind of backed away from a lot of multifocality in my practice. I went more towards monovision. And uh, as I was uh, at the same time seeing this new development of this technology with the symphony lens, I started to feel more confident that this may be a pathway for us to find a more acceptable quality vision and still have a high degree of independence from glasses. Coming to you now on Ophthalmology Off the Grid. Ophthalmology Off the Grid is an independent podcast supported with advertising from Buy. Well, today we have Kevin Waltz with us, and Kevin is, has been a friend of mine for a while, uh, someone that has uh, helped me uh, in my own lens venture, someone who I really trust in mean, all things lens and all things cataract surgery, and uh, it's really a delight and pleasure to talk to you today, Kevin, and we're going to be talking about the Symphony lens, a lens that you had uh, your hand in from the very beginning. So give us a little bit of uh, your thoughts on, on this technology, you know, kind of your first impressions and how you saw it develop and maybe when you, when you started being a, becoming a, a true believer. Thanks, Gary. The Symphony lens for me has been an interesting journey in part because I had the privilege of doing the first clinical trial with the Symphony in Honduras in 2012. One of the things that's important to know about the symphony is that the trial wasn't just a one-off, one-lens trial. Uh, AMO actually had done a phase trial with three different lens designs in an attempt to get the best possible distance vision with the least amount of, of unwanted visual sensations at distance, glare, halos, etc., at the same time, providing useful near vision. And you can imagine that's a tall challenge, and it required uh, human input. You can't just do that in the lab. You can, you can theorize how well it's going to work, but in the end, you had to do it in humans. And there's only so many places where you can do that, and you can do it in a reasonable time fashion. So the uh, 50% of that... Uh, sequential trials were done in Honduras. The last was in uh, September, October, November of um, 2012. And we compared the symphony to the ZCBU. And it was really amazing because it worked exceptionally well even uh, even then. the That particular design was what the symphony ultimately became. And it was also quite ironic that we had these patients in Honduras that normally couldn't afford cataract surgery that had a very interesting lens that you couldn't buy for any price anywhere in the world. Yeah, is, isn't that interesting? You know, you're going down and doing, you know, um, a human trial with, with technology that we're now using. And you're exactly right. You're, you're giving absolutely maybe the best premium lens available nowhere else to this population. And um, now you've got people with just incredible uh, range of vision uh, that otherwise may not even have access to cataract surgery. And, you know, to me, Kevin, that is like the ultimate win. You're doing a good thing. You're helping people who may otherwise not be able to, um, to get care. At the same time, you're making a contribution to um, a company that has, you know, a, deeply invested in research and also the field of ophthalmology where we're seeking to improve the technology we can offer patients. And so 
you know, our conversations have ranged, you know, from mission work in the past to, you know, what lenses are you using, but it really seems like this is a sweet spot for you, you know, giving back, doing charitable work, but at the same time, pushing the envelope forward with innovation. So talk to me a little bit about that, that journey, and then maybe we'll kind of come back to um, talking more about the symphony and where it's at in uh, your clinical practice. Well, one of the things that's wonderful about Central America is that in spite of the the reputation, the, the regulatory system there in most countries is actually workable. And it turns out that in Honduras and El Salvador, it's very workable. And so uh, the way that the AMO started uh, the process with Symphony is the first trial was done in Germany with three different sites. And the enrollment took a year and a half. So by the time you did the enrollment, the data analysis was prepared around two years, two years into it. So they did the second, the first half of the second round was done in Germany as well, and they're a year into it. They're going, holy cow, this is going to take us a decade to get this done. And I had done some work for AMO previously in Honduras. I actually did the, uh, uh, we had a custom modified intralase that we did uh, Fimto capsulotomies with in Honduras. It was the only time that uh, it was ever done in humans with an intralase. It worked quite well. And some other things. And of course, it had done research for them in the U.S. And they said, look, we've we got to speed up this process. Can you help us? And what was amazing was that they had 15 patients was our comparison point because they had the 15 patients done in Germany. So they we did 15 bilateral patients in Honduras and we could compare 15 to 15 three good sites in Germany to our site in Honduras. From Go, which was about the middle of January 2012, this was round two, we uh, identified patients enrolled and completed surgery before the end of uh, February. So we did it in six weeks. We got uh, IRB approval, protocol approval, and identified patients and completed surgery in six weeks. Wow, that's lightning fast. And um, the challenge, of course, is then you have to have really good follow-up. So I, we sent down my research technician from the U.S. to do the one-month and three-month follow-ups, which were quite difficult. They were three-hour exams plus for each patient. And at the end of that, AMO had the data. They, show, they were able to show that we got equivalent results to the German site. And so they said, you can have round three. So in round three, we did the same. We, um, from beginning to end of the study, uh, well, beginning to completion of surgery enrollment was about six weeks. We did 30, 30 bilateral cases. And AMO will tell you that that process shaved between 18 and 20 months off worldwide delivery of the symphony to the, from AMO. So had we not done that, if they'd followed the original plan in Germany, nobody in the world at the moment would have symphony. Wow. So it was very satisfying for our team to be able to contribute in that way. And then to have it work so well was additionally satisfying. Uh, so it's been quite amazing in the process. Man, that, that is just, uh, that's incredible. And, um, you know, in my experience, you know, I've, I've done about, a, a, at this point, 10 to 12 uh, symphony lenses. So still kind of early in the experience, but it's really, um, it's a different lens. You know, I, I think a lot of folks have sort of thought about this as an, the next multifocal or just another multifocal or an, another low-ad multifocal. And to be honest, my experience with the low-ad multifocals from Technus was, was tremendous. And so there's nothing wrong with those lenses. But just like any other multifocal, you really just kind of have to be spot on with your uh, biometry and you have to make sure that you're you know picking the right lens. It's just not quite as forgiving, perhaps, as a monofocal lens even with regard to leaving a little bit of uh, uncorrected astigmatism or the times when you have those surprise posterior astigmatism that you're not counting on. So, you know, there's just some, some nuances to multifocal lenses that, you know, we all have learned to deal with and can deal with. But with these patients I'm, I'm using the Symphony on, it really seems like there's a much larger sweet spot. And that really seems like that's by design. And uh, as, as I've talked to some other folks, you know, it seems like there's about two diopters of 
uh, a a visual plateau, and you can if you can land the plane on on anywhere in that visual plateau, you're going to have good distance vision. And kind of depending on where you end up on that uh, on that plateau of vision will really determine how much near vision uh, you have. What are, what are your what are your thoughts on on this lens versus the other lenses in this um, in this market of the you know, presbyopia correcting technologies? Well, I agree with your comments, Gary. I think that that's those are pretty accurate. The challenge we have with the symphony is there was. Uh, quite naturally, a lot of emotional and psychological buildup to it. And so one of the things that's characteristic about ophthalmologists, myself included, the thing that we like the most is that which we cannot have. So since we couldn't have the symphony for so long, we coveted it and coveted it, and we made it solve all of our problems, which it won't do. But it will solve some of them. And the ones that it will solve pretty reliably are what you just described, uh, if you have a multifocal lens, even a very high quality one like the low-add tetanus multifocals, you really need to be plus or minus a half diopter on your cylinder, and you really need to be half, plus or minus half diopter sphere. And that's, in today's world, the best surgeon in the world cannot do that every time. I published my results, and, you know, typically I'm 8 9% doing laser vision correction enhancement to get everybody right. And then when you do that, they're spectacular, but it's more hassle. And the symphony will decrease those uh, enhancement rates. Um, right. You, uh, you'll be able to tolerate a little bit more unexpected astigmatism. Uh, depending on what exactly they want uh, for their near vision, you'll be able to tolerate a little bit uh, less precision on your distance. Now, you, you can't be off on your sphere and off on your cylinder and expect all that forgiveness. It would be better to be off just in your sphere or just in your cylinder um, to get the maximum benefit out of the symphony. The other thing that it does is it will help you with irregularity. So if you've got irregular astigmatism, it will be a little bit more forgiving of that. We don't have good FDA data on that, but I can tell you from personal experience that that's the case. How much, we don't know. We're not able to say, but certainly it's more tolerant than a multifocal in that regard. Right. Well, and then, so, yeah, and then you throw in on top of that the the fact that we've got a toric version. You know, that adds a, a whole other element to what this lens can do for us. Absolutely. And that, that actually has been probably the biggest change for me. In the past, we we all had this artificial divide that about a third of the patients in the population have enough astigmatism, you really don't want to use a multifocal. So you're going to do treat them with a toric. And then the other 66% or so, you can do a multifocal if you want. Uh, so you've got this artificial divide. Now all of a sudden, you don't have that artificial divide. And at what point do you start treating astigmatism? And for me, I've treated it at even at a lower point, even though the symphony is more forgiving. So if I've got, say, three-quarters of the doctor predicted astigmatism post-op, I'm still going to put in a symphony toric because the patient will be better off if I treat that three-quarters of the doctor astigmatism. It'll give me more leeway, more flex in my sphere. I can be off a little bit more in my sphere if I do a little bit better job on my cylinder. And to let me give you a, uh, some metrics to help understand the relative value of it. With the tetanus multifocal platform, we looked at this retrospectively from the FDA data. And if you're plus or minus a half doctor and cylinder, it pretty much doesn't matter how much cylinder you've got. But if you add uh, three-quarters of doctor cylinders, so from half to three-quarters, you lost a line. If you went to a diopter, you lost two. And up to a diopter and a half, you lost four lines of vision. So a big hit. What we were able to show with the symphony is at a doctor and a half of residual astigmatism, you only lost one line. So it's not that you didn't lose any, but you lost one-fourth of the lines that you did with the multifocal. So it's not perfect, but it's certainly more forgiving. And that aspect of it encourages you to treat the astigmatism more, where before if you were had a patient that, say, had a diopter of cylinder predicted, you might try to go, okay, I'm going to treat the cylinder with an LRI or a laser incision or something. And so you've got a little bit of imprecision about that. 
if you're using a multifocal? Well, you have less imprecision if you're using a toric symphony. And so you tend to get a little bit better result. Kevin, talk to me about um, your thoughts on maybe mixing and matching this lens with um, either a low ad or maybe a, a traditional multifocal or even sort of doing a, a mini monovision where maybe in the non-dominant eye you're targeting minus a half, minus three quarters, minus one. What are your strategies when you're approaching a patient and you know that they want to have full range of vision? Um, just kind of walk me through that. Do you start with the dominant eye and then make adjustments on the non-dominant eye? Or what are, you, what are your pearls and strategies? Well, first of all, Gary, let me caution everybody by saying I am not, even though I have a lot of experience with this, I'm not, I don't have the ultimate answer to those questions. So I can give you my current point of evolution in those answers, but maybe uh, six months or a year from now, I would change my mind. Sure, sure. I tend to like to do, uh, when, when a product first comes out, to do bilateral implantation. It teaches me about the product. It, I also recognize that I'm pretty good at achieving plus or minus half diopter. In a monofocal, it's a low 90%. So I don't miss too much, but I still miss occasionally. So I tend to aim with a symphony for about minus a quarter in both eyes. On average, I'm going to get one eye a little bit plus, one eye a little bit minus. And so effectively, I get a little bit of mini monovision, and that works quite well. And that's what happened in the U.S. trial. The investigators, on average, left people about minus a quarter. With that, the patient was 20-20 distance, 20-20 intermediate, and 20-25 at near 40 centimeters. And these were the first 148 eyes across 14 sites. So early experience with a lot of investigators, very consistent visual outcomes. Most patients are quite satisfied with that. There will be some that won't. So for instance, I've had a patient recently who was minus eight and had done monovision her whole life, whole presbyopic life, and said, look, I got to be able to see something super close and that's the way it's got to be. So in her, we put symphony in her distance eye, which was a dominant eye, and in the near eye, I put in a Z and boo, a plus four tetanus, and aim for minus one. Okay. And she was thrilled. Wow. Because that was a lot better than she'd had with her monovision. So you can come across those occasional strange cases, and creative thinking will get you the answer. But as a general statement, your plain vanilla patient will do beautifully with bilateral symphonies. Well, and that, that mirrors my, you know, again, limited experience. This is something that's it's hard to talk about a new product with any sort of um, authority, as you mentioned, because we're all still kind of feeling this thing out. But, you know, I've had a number of patients, you know, that 2015 distance and, you know, 2020 intermediate, J1, J1 plus near, and that actually kind of blew my expectations away. I did not expect them to get quite as good near vision as they're achieving. That may not be every patient, but we're, we're targeting, you know, kind of between minus a quarter and minus a half. Um, based on the defocus curve, it really seems like if, you know, you're able to do that, you're going to, you're going to push um, a little bit more near vision without getting, um, giving up so much in the distance. And, you know, I've not had any patients so far, again, low numbers and we can talk in six months and, and have a different conversation perhaps, but, you know, so far I've really not had any patients that were anything but thrilled with their quality of vision and range of vision. And I actually had a patient the other day who, um, in between surgeries, the symphony was approved. So we had done her first eye with a monofocal lens and, you know, she had, um, heard the messaging about the symphony and, and wanted the symphony in her, in her other eye and was so thrilled with her vision in, in the in the second eye, she actually wanted me to explant her first monofocal lens and put a symphony in. Now, we, we had a conversation about that, and, and she ultimately decided to not do that because she was doing pretty well. But it just kind of goes to show the um, this is a different lens from maybe anything I've ever experienced before. I never had a patient previously who wanted a a monofocal lens exchanged for a multifocal when they had both to compare. So I think that speaks volumes to not only the range, but also the quality of vision, which 
that's what we've been all looking for for, for quite some time. Yeah, totally agree, Gary. Here's a interesting commentary on the um, the forgiveness of the lens. I was involved in the original tetanus multifocal trial and the subsequent LOAD tetanus multifocal trial, the tetanus toric. All of these are specialty lenses, and the patients are quite demanding. One of the things that I do as a courtesy of the patient is after the trial is over and our gloves are off, if there's an occasional patient that's not quite satisfied, I'll go back as a courtesy and just do laser vision correction to make their vision good. That's happened in virtually every trial I've ever been in because it's your first experience. You're not going to get it just right. You're going to have issues. Right. The first trial that didn't happen in was a symphony. Really? At the end of the symphony trial, nobody wanted laser vision correction, not a single person. And it was no charge, no hassle, no other. said, Doc, I'm fine. Leave me alone. Wow. And what was the number of patients you were, you're talking about here? Uh, I think kind of in the 20s. Okay. But still, from a first experience, um, that, is, that is pretty incredible. And I think that is a, an, an interesting commentary when that's been your first lens that that's not happened with. So that is very interesting. So, you know, we've got good anecdotal evidence that um, it's going to be forgiving. The, the one thing that has surprised us uh, the investigators uh, after FDA approval is the uh, range of symptoms in the patients after FDA approval was different than the range of symptoms of patients in the FDA study. I was um, very interested in what the symptoms were going to be in the study, and I personally talked to most of the patients, and basically you couldn't get any adverse symptoms out of them. You know, you'd ask them, how you doing? Fine. Seeing halos? No. Seeing glare? No. I mean, they just didn't have much to say other than thank you very much. Right. Then after FDA approval, we've been surprised there's been more symptoms uh, than I would have expected. And we think it's probably related to just a big payment, and that changes your expectations. (laughs) So if you're in the trial and you get it for free... Your, um, your expectation level is a little bit lower and your willingness to perhaps tolerate some of these things is, is, is higher. Yeah, and I'm not even sure tolerated. Patients just didn't see it. Right. Now, if you talk to the, if you look at the FDA results, there were, there were quite a bit of directed questions. Meaning we had an independent group call up the patients and ask them about it. And in directed questions, there was quite a, quite a response. But the base lens is a ZCBU, which is known to have very few adverse symptoms. It had quite a few adverse symptoms in the trial. So the symphony didn't have that much more over the base lens. I think it was probably just how we asked the questions. Well, and, and the way you design a trial and the way you're asked to design a trial ultimately determines um, or, or in some way shapes the results you're going to get. So you know, if you're just waiting for people to spontaneously complain about something, your um, number is going to be a lot lower than if you ask them and prompt them to analyze their vision for a certain um, symptom, glare, halo, etc. And the suge- even the mere suggestion of something um, can sometimes have that reverse placebo effect that, oh, I, I think I do see that perhaps. Um, and, you know, and we know there's, there's no perfect lens. You know, every lens out there, there's going to be some, some trade-offs and there's going to be some issues with certain patients. But I do feel like in my gut that the symphony is raising, the, um, raising what it delivers on and ra- raising the performance with, a, with very, very minimal uh, reduction um, in, in quality of vision or addition of glare halo symptoms. So I, I feel like we've really gained something here that we previously didn't have. One thing that we can expect with the symphony is the unwanted visual sensation profile will be a little bit different. A halo is caused because you've got two peaks in the defocus curve. You've got your distance peak and your near peak. And that little dip gives you the, the clear zone so the halo is a lot of light in the center, and then the uh, circle of light around it represents myopic uh, defocus. You don't have that with the symphony. What you've got is a little bit greater glow right around the distance image. 
but you do get a little bit more starbursting for some because of some optical reasons. So in general, the symphony doesn't have much in the way of halos, but it has a little bit more starbursting. Patients will oftentimes describe it when you when you query them as almost a little bit of a spider web pattern. It's not particularly bright, but if you've got a back dark background, you can you can see that. So the the symptomatology is slightly different with a symphony than a multifocal. Now, it's also important to know that if you've got just a monofocal, you get significant um, extra sensations from that monofocal. Uh, back in, I think it was 06, Chang published his book on premium lenses. I wrote a chapter in there on uh, the unwanted visual sensations you get from just a plain old monofocal. And they're not insignificant. Most patients don't notice them, don't care about them, but if you look at them, they, they're definitely there. So those things are, we expect the symphony to have a little bit different symptom profile. The other thing that that is interesting to think about is this, and I need you to release your mind just for a second. You're too young to remember this era, but, but back in the 90s, it was very cool to use extended depth of focus with astigmatism to improve patients' results after cataract surgery. So the ideal back then was Plano minus one cylinder, which was very difficult to achieve back in the early 90s with our, with our level of biometry calculations, etc. But if you could achieve that, you could pretty reliably get 20, 30 distance, intermediate, and near. And so that was, that's what the cool kids did. That's well. You're elongating the conate of Sturm, so it you know kind of makes sense. Exactly. So the difference with the symphony is by fixing the chromatic aberration, you give so much available extra light to focus that when you extend the depth of focus, we purposely only decreased the best focus down to 2016. So the, if you just fix the chromatic aberration and make it a monofocal with diffractive optics, you can get to about 20 over 08. Which is, which is really beyond the resolution limit of the retina at that point. Yes. So we dropped that defocus curve and extended it out to the right, but we didn't drop it any more than a theoretical 2016, which is why you're getting such good visual results at distance. Right, and I think that's a that's a key point. You know, when we're talking about a multifocal, you're talking about taking all the available light and splitting it between two uh, different foci, and that's limited by the material and the other um, perhaps imperfections with regard to um, uh, the material you're using. With what I think is interesting is it's like with this material and the correction of chromatic aberrations. AMO started by increasing the amount of available light for focusing and then flattening out that defocus curve, which, which really, to me, is the secret of all this. Would you agree? Yes, completely. You, they basically created extra light to focus and then, then advantageously moved it around. And that's why they needed to have the human trials to be the way they were because they weren't quite sure how the human would react to it. And in the first two rounds, there wasn't enough near vision. So it took the third round to, to get the secret sauce right. Well, I'll tell you, I'm very impressed with what AMO has done. I'm, I'm super happy to have this, you know, another tool in my tool belt to offer patients. And, um, I mean, I'm just absolutely thrilled that we can, we finally have another lens um, to offer patients with better range of vision, lower side effect profile, and overall just happier doctors, happier patients, happier life. So Kevin, thank you so much. Any, any parting thoughts before we uh, wrap this up? One final thing, Gary, this one's a little bit higher concept, but it's, it's important to think about because it will allow you to use the symphony in other ways that you might not have thought about. One of the negatives of using astigmatism to increase the depth of focus, it is radially dependent. So, you know, you've got two axes at 90 degrees apart. The symphony technology the, the extended depth of focus is active 360 degrees. So if you get, let's say, a four-cut RK patient, they've got quadrifoil. You're going to get different focuses, in, and we use that to extend their depth of focus. Well, the symphony will automatically refocus those different foci uh, beneficially for the patient. 
So are you saying that this is a lens that has some potential applications even for the RK patients? Yes. Now, of course, that's off-label. We haven't studied that, but I've got patients already that I put the symphony in with RK patients, and they love it. They, they recognize that all of a sudden there's more light focused at their fovea than there has been in a long time. Hmm. That is really interesting. You know, I've, I've already used it myself in a post-LASIK patient, and I've had you know, great results. So you know, this is a technology I think is going to you know, extend not only the range of patients um, for those who've had you know, higher levels of astigmatism, but maybe even uh, a re- another chance to, to, to reset the deck for patients who've had laser vision correction, and now you know, maybe even RK. That's very interesting, Kevin. And we, we don't know for sure that this is the case. We're starting a phase four study as we speak. But anecdotally, we've had some very nice experiences, and we're getting ready to implant a uh, well-known refractive cataract surgeon who has prior RK, and he's going to volunteer to be the first ophthalmologist with uh, RK and Symphony. Well, very good. We'd love to have a follow-up on uh, on how that, that went, and maybe um, if, if he's had a, a interesting experience he would like to uh, come on and give us his story so let's keep that in mind for for the future all right gary thanks so much awesome kevin thanks for everything you've done for me personally um, for our field and and for the folks in central america uh, you've made a huge impact Another key player in the development of the Symphony IOL is Dr. Jason Jones. Jason served as a clinical investigator at one of 15 sites in the U.S. clinical trial. I touched base with him to see what the experience was like and to collect some intel on how the lens has been performing since then. Welcome back to Ophthalmology Off the Grid, and today I have Dr. Jason Jones from Sioux City, Iowa on the program and I'm really excited to talk to Jason because he's been involved with Symphony uh, from the very beginning uh, from the FDA trial. He's just got a lot of good information. He's got a lot of uh, great perspectives. Jason, I read your article, I believe it was just last month in CRST about your experience with Symphony and you know, you shared a lot of pearls of wisdom and I was wondering if you wouldn't mind just kind of going through your experience with Symphony kind of giving us some real-world data, some real-world perspectives on uh, Symphony, and where you really see it fitting into our armamentarium uh, going forward. I was a part of the FDA study, so uh, we had a certain number of patients we could enroll, and they were randomized uh, one-to-one. So that actually, uh, even at this point, still is the bulk of my experience. Um, I do have several implantations uh, most recently done as well uh, as a commercial device. So my experience with the study was uh, overwhelmingly positive. Uh, patients really enjoyed excellent distance vision, intermediate vision, and, and in my experience with my patients, they really had good near vision, which was a bit of a surprise. We didn't really fully expect to get quite as much near vision out of these uh, devices, and um, that was a that was a, a really welcome thing. Um, patients, generally speaking, had. 2020 or better uncorrected distance vision, um, and uh, I mean, one patient had even 2010 uncorrected vision. It was just uh, kind of just an incredible level of, of, of at least snell and acuity. Quality of vision seemed very high as well. Patients did report they had some halos, uh, and uh, but they, they were not bothered by that, and they did not feel it was intrusive to their vision. Um, I did have one patient notice halos uh, even you know in, in daytime, uh, with regular illuminations, like such as in my exam room, the, the ceiling lights when I had them on. And uh, I have had follow-up with him over time, and, and he's now more than a year out, and he says he doesn't see them at all. Uh, and he's extremely happy with his vision. Um, patients really don't wear reading glasses that often. They do wear them for specific things like uh, reading small prints, the back of a, a pill bottle, for example, um, or you know perhaps threading a needle. Um, something very fine um, that you know may require some additional assistance with a very low power reader. Uh, patients are not using two and a half or two ads. They're usually using one and a half or, or even lower um, in terms of ha- adding a, a, a reading glass to their use. And and they they truly do use them rarely. So uh, you know visions, acuities, but also just patient my perception of my patients' experience 
was really exciting. And, and that actually was just, you know, I, I was on the edge of my seat waiting for this to get approved. And um, it really did go through the approval process quite quickly with the FDA, which was nice to see. Uh, and not only did we get the, uh, the, the symphony approved, but also the symphony torque, which was a fantastic, uh, add, uh, to what we we have available for our patients. I think, you know, certainly as you know, Gary, it's the first, uh, presbyopia correcting torque lens in the, in the U S market. Um, and these lenses have been deemed, uh, presbyopia correcting by, by Medicare as well. Um, so, uh, I think we now have some really great tools to go forward with uh, with our patients. In my experience, uh, I find that um, in the past, multifocal lenses had a lot of promise, but they also had a lot of problems. And uh, as I used them a fair amount for a while in my practice, I had some disappointments, and some of them became you know very emotionally involving with the patients, my staff, uh, and myself as well. And, uh, you know, I made sure to basically correct these patients. I did IOL exchanges when indicated and when it would help them. And I was, I was impressed how well patients would recover a good feeling of quality vision with the monofocal lens. So I really kind of backed away from a lot of multifocality in my practice. I went more towards monovision. And uh, as I was uh, at the same time seeing this new development of this technology with the Symphony lens, um, I started to feel more confident that this may be a pathway for us to find a more acceptable quality of vision um, and still have a high degree of independence from glasses, certainly for those patients who have the desire uh, to, to, to obtain that sort of outcome. Um, and you know, as we all know, these patients have to pay extra money for it as well. Um, so you know, I, th I think actually uh, these lenses, at least in my practice, are largely going to supplant a lot of multifocality. Um, I don't think multifocals are a, a bad thing either, by the way. Uh, I still think they have their place. But I think a very frank discussion with patients in terms of, you know, where uh, the issues are for these different lenses. You know, multifocal lens may give you a larger amount of uncorrected vision, both for distance and near. However, some quality vision issues are more prominent with those lenses. Um, and you have to be willing to accept that trade-off. Here we've got a little bit higher quality of vision, and reading vision for some patients is not quite as robust, uh, at least by the reports in the FDA trial, as well as in the real world with other people. There are people reporting some patients see incredibly well, and other patients uh, don't have quite that same level of uncorrected near acuity. So um, there are some modifications people can do in terms of choosing uh, defocus uh, as a target uh, for a non-dominant eye, for example, with Symphony. Um, and that is uh, partly how I plan to move forward with using Symphony as my primary presbyopia correcting choice for patients who are wanting good acuity, balanced vision between the two eyes. Um, I think monovision will still have a place as well, by the way. So I think you know we have such great tools available to us. Uh, it's kind of, I guess, really a good time to be a patient who needs cataract surgery. I mean, we, we have such great... Uh, great toys, if you will, you know, we have such great, uh, you know, effectiveness in terms of what we can actually do for these patients. It really is quite incredible. I agree. Oh, and it's, uh, and it's a great time to be a cataract surgeon, don't you think? I mean, so Jason, you, you uh, packed a lot of information uh, in there. I'd like to just kind of dive into a couple of those. Um, sure. You know, first of all, just saying that your patients have had pretty good experience with near vision. And I'll tell you, you know, my end is much smaller. I, I think I just implanted my fifth symphony uh, today. A couple of those have been Symphony Torix, but the first sure. the first one I implanted was a Symphony Torix. Mm -hmm. um, you know, day one, the guy's 2015, uh, 2020 intermediate in J1 near, and that has not changed. And his, yeah. he got his other eye taken care of. This guy is just over the moon. Um, yeah. Second patient has done equally well. And, yeah. you know, obviously we don't always hit our targets. That's just life. That's part of being a cataract surgeon and there's, right. there's still variability. But what I right. love about this is if you really look at the defocus curve, you get – this lens is just so forgiving because you get some forgiveness both in the um, hyperopic direction as well as the myopic direction. And so, yep. you know, when I, when I was looking at the defocus curve – I was thinking to myself, you know, it really probably makes more sense to aim for almost minus a quarter 
maybe even up to minus a half because the 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 plateau effect or the extended depth of focus it it'll work backwards for you by almost a half a diopter. So yep. if you do that and you're and you get pretty pretty good there, you know you'll still have that great quality twenty twenty distance vision, but you're going to have basically twenty twenty vision all the way up through two diopters of uh, of nearsightedness. And right. I think that's probably maybe there maybe you can speak to that. That maybe some patients see great distance and intermediate, but maybe we miss the mark a little bit, and that's why they're not seeing quite as well up close. Do you think that's a that plays a, a role in how well people see up close? I definitely do, Gary. I think it's a really important point, you know, in terms of being able to give the best and most the best performance here with the symphony lens. I think you really really pays to do due diligence on your IOL powers, on your surgery, uh, pay attention to all the details. Yes, it's more forgiving. I completely agree. But the more that you do pay attention to it and get those little areas right and actually hit your target more readily, uh, the more likely you're going to be able to deliver that that outcome that we want, both distance, intermediate, as well as near vision as you've experienced with your own fantastic outcomes already. So I think that um, some experiences early on, OUS that I've heard about, some some surgeons have reported that it's not quite such a near vision lens um, and I would have to question, you know, how did they choose their lens power? What formulas did they use? What biometry did they use? How accurate are they, are they with their calculations? Uh, just because you're using the right biometer and have the right calculations and all the right constants doesn't mean you actually hit your targets. So you need to actually really kind of dig into your own backyard, so to speak, and, and figure that out yourself. But I think if, and, and the other thing that I know people have done is to deliver excellent distance vision and ensure that you get distance vision. A lot of some people will actually choose a slightly hyperopic target, at least in the dominant eye. And it's not a bad strategy, but on the other hand, it takes away from the near and even some of the intermediate vision that patients can get. So it really behooves us to actually do our due diligence, you know, and, and really kind of, you know, uh, titrate ourselves as much as possible in terms of those outcomes. Um, and I go through. Uh, a process with these patients, which is not that different um, from what I do with my monofocal lenses, and, and you know, uh, except I get more measurements. I get a second set of measurements. I do topography on everyone, even if they don't have a lot of cylinder. Um, I'll even treat a fairly low amount of cylinder, especially if it's against the rule, um, and I'd rather leave them maybe with a little bit of uh, with the rule uh, afterwards if we have to. Um, a toric lens is, fa is a fantastic, you know, piece of that armamentarium to deliver that outcome. And, and so, uh, you know, I find that if you, I, I think of like that defocus curve, it's kind of like a reserve capacity or a, a, almost like a focus bank. You know, if you, if you, you know, if you target hyperopia, uh, it, you're going to steal some from that, that defocus curve in terms of giving the broader range that you, the patient wants to have. So I think if we can actually nail down our target system, um, and really get that kind of, you know, fantastic fine-tuned outcome. It's really also important to talk to patients about, you know, the fact that you may have some glare and halos. They usually do get better with time. I think it's important still to bring up that as a possibility. I have heard that outside the U.S., when that wasn't discussed, some patients found that they had those and they were upset. And when the strategy changed in those markets to informing patients preoperatively, there was a lot more happiness and acceptance of it. It's much easier uh, to go that route, and I think it's just safer for the patient and yourself too. Uh, as well, um, you know, uh, um, pushing plus on your refractions to make sure that you actually are getting a really good, um, uh, you know, accurate outcome. Um, one of the fantastic things about the Technus platform for the single piece acrylic is that those constants for the ZC Boo really travel across to the toric monofocal, to the symphony, to the multifocals, to the symphony toric. You know, so you can become comfortable with your IOL power calculations and knowing where your targeting is just by having experience, uh, even with monofocal lenses. So, you know, you can use those as, as a good barometer for how accurate you really are. Um, and in my own practice, I, I basically... A lot of the same steps I do are the same for all the patients, whether or not they're getting a symphony or they're getting a toric or they're getting a, you know, what have you, a monofocal lens. So 
all those things really breed a, a better outcome, a tighter, uh, tighter grouping. Um, and I think, you know, a, a adding a little bit of minus um, in the non-Damarai, which was actually a, a paper presented at Ascaris uh, from Daniel Black. Um, and, uh, you know, that is a strategy which has uh, good ability to enhance uh, near focusing for a lot of patients. And, you know, you said it, you said it really nicely, the, the, the symphony lens, it's almost like a reserve uh, power bank or a power reserve. And, you know, yeah. I kind of, my, my, one of my partners is a, uh, is a pilot. And so he's always talking to me about landing planes on either nice wide runways, or sometimes he has to fly into little airports that have very narrow runways, which he doesn't like as well, obviously. And right. you know, I think about multifocals is like you're trying to land a plane on a really narrow, tight, short runway, and there, it's, it's just not very forgiving. You just kind of have to hit your marks, and there's going to be right. times that you don't, and that's where we have other technologies like laser vision correction, lens exchanges, etc. It really seems like the opposite is true with the Symphony. You've got this nice, wide runway, and you know even the glare and halo issue is you know, not, hasn't, at least in the data I've seen in, in my small, you know, cohort of patients, hasn't really been an issue. Right. Um, you know, to me, I'm, I'm actually just trying to think like, all right, when would I not use a symphony? You know, right. what are the, what are the real contraindications? I mean, obviously if someone's got macular issues, that's a no-go, right. glaucoma, you know, right. weird, you know, topography, obviously, yep. you know, those are no-goes, but what about patients who've had LASIK in the past or PRK? If they've got a pretty normal, they don't have a lot of higher order aberrations or doing you know, pretty well, would you do a symphony on a, on a post-LASIK patient, for example? Uh, yeah, I definitely would. I think that um, this, you know, this is all comes down to informed consent and discussion with the patient, though. I mean, you know, uh, and, and you, you can have great outcomes with Snell and acuity and, and objectively, you know, feel like you've, you've hit your mark and done all the right things, but the patient can still be unhappy. So, uh, and that doesn't have to be even a post-LASIK patient, but LASIK patients and, and, uh, you know, I've had LASIK myself, you know, I, and I honestly tell patients, you know, uh, and this is, I, you know, I'm, I'm going to have cataracts at some point in my life too. And, and, you know, as each of these generations come out of te different technologies, I think about, would this be something that I would be wanting or willing to use for myself? And I've been pretty hesitant prior to this technology, but with Symphony, actually, I feel a little bit more comfortable with that concept. Um, and I have heard from other surgeons outside the United States that have used it in post-LASIK uh, patients, uh, primarily post-myopic, you know, uh, laser vision correction patients. And, uh, you know, if they have a pretty nice-looking, you know, clean topography, uh, they're excellent candidates and they can do quite well. Um, so I think this actually does really supplement our ability to approach those patients with greater confidence and really get a good result, you know, uh, just like anything else. So, you know, I think, uh, you know, all the things you mentioned, the hair, the glare and halo issue, you know, for all patients seems to be pretty minimal, but there are some patients who really do have problems still, um, as with theirs with any lens. And so, uh, you know, I think it's really important, uh, when, you know, patients are paying some extra money, a considerable amount of extra money, and they, they have such expectations, I think it really is important to still, you know, bring up the possibility that, you know, things usually work the way we want them to, but sometimes they don't quite work out that well. So let's just be open in terms of the conversation. We expect this to work nicely for you. Um, and, you know, I think it's a good choice for you, um, but, uh, you know, make sure you keep us informed. Um, so I think that, um, those sorts of kind of open conversations, those kind of come out of my experience of working with patients in studies and in, in, even in this study, it's actually gotten to be such an easy process because when you take a patient into a study, uh, you really just, you know, you have an open book here and you're going to talk about what this technology is you know, what are the pros and cons and what are their options? Uh, patients are truly electing to let you do this for them and, and kind of uncharted territory, at least in the United States, um, in terms of technology. So that kind of is carried forward into just a general concept of approaching patients uh, for me. Yeah. And, you know, I think that a lot of times, you know, patients are however you are. So, you know, if you, if you, tell patients or if you approach patients with a great deal of hesitancy and anxiety that, 
You know, you might have glare and halos and, you know, we might have to yank this lens out and sometimes there's some really bad problems that happen with that. You know, while that information can be correct, a lot of times the way and the manner in which you present that information, also your own confidence in your skill set um, can really determine the, the message you're communicating more so than just the words you're saying. And, right. you know, I remember earlier in my career before I had done too many lens exchanges or you know, really had much experience with that. You know, it was with fear and trepidation that I was talking to patients about this, about, you know, multifocal technology, sort of promoting it, but also being a little hesitant about it. And, you know, that's not a great way to, to to go into a patient experience. It's not a great way to go into the operating room, you know, so as my, I guess, as my experience has uh, gotten broader and I feel a little bit more comfortable, um, you know, it allows me to have a conversation that, that's really much more natural with a patient. And I just, I, like you said, it's, right. it's like, you know, we have this technology. If, if I were having cataract surgery today, I would put a symphony lens in my eye. I'm really excited that I get to have the opportunity to, to, to use this lens in your eye. But with every technology, you know, there are sometimes patients who will have certain symptoms. Sometimes those go away. Sometimes they don't. And if it's a problem for you, we'll take care of it. You know, and, right. and that's basically kind of how I, how I leave it. And, you know, and that's, that's how I honestly feel. If there's a problem, we'll take care of it. Don't worry about it. You know, we're, you know, we're going to get you taken care of. And I think, right. I think having that is a really important step in approaching refractive cataract surgery. It's kind of hard to do that if you don't feel like you have that comfort level with taking care of the issues afterwards. Right. Yeah. Or at least having a plan to take care of them, you know, so, you know, you may not feel comfortable doing a lens exchange. Um, but certainly, you know, your, your colleague or in your own practice or someone across town, you know, may feel more comfortable helping you out, but, you know, kind of tapping their shoulder, talking, having a conversation with them. Um, but also doing a favor to your patient and to yourself and potentially to the other person who might be taking care of your patient, you know, prepare the eye well for the possibility the lens is not just going in, in a one way direction. You know, uh, curating the capsular bag, really removing LECs, uh, doing all that proper, you know, work. I mean, you know, when I think about, you know, a patient who's had LASIK surgery, I think, you know, all the time about, you know, this lens is going in. I feel very comfortable about the lens power choice, but I might have to take it out. So let's just make sure it can come out more. Easy, That's you right. Know? That's right. Well, Jason, I really, I really just want to say thank you so much for um, your work and what you've done and the, the, the multiple studies and other educational endeavors um, you've, you've uh, put out there. Uh, thank you for your time tonight to talk to us about Symphony. I am really, really excited about this technology. I know you are as well. And uh, you know, hats off to AMO for uh, getting this lens approved. Not only the, the Symphony, but Symphony Toric. Um, it's really making my day, you know, when I get to use these lenses and see the happy patients. So, um, man, thanks so much. Yeah, you're very welcome, Gary. It's uh, it's a real pleasure. And, uh, yeah, you know, using this technology, uh, it makes it very pleasurable. It's just a great experience for everyone involved. So thank you. The FDA approval of the Technus Symphony and Technus Symphony Torque was met with great enthusiasm, and rightfully so. From bench to bedside, this technology has been viewed as a promising treatment option for our cataract patients. I encourage anyone interested in this lens to reach out to the colleagues around you who can share their real-world experience and results. As evidenced by Drs. Waltz and Jones, these are outcomes worth discussing. I know that we'll continue to push the envelope in our pursuit to provide optimal patient care. As we do, let's chat about it. This has been Ophthalmology Off the Grid. Thanks for tuning in. Ophthalmology Off the Grid is an independent podcast supported with advertising from Buy.